what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Something peculiar is happening to my clothes. They're wearing out. The cotton has worn thin, the stitching has come undone in places, the colors have faded. When I first noticed a few pieces of clothing looking a bit worn, I was disappointed. But when it became a pattern, I started thinking about why many of my clothes were on their last legs. And the reason? Well, I've had them for four or five years and wear them at least weekly. Most of them do double duty as daytime wear and workout wear. In other words, I earned those holes in faded colors. It also dawned on me that I've rarely noticed clothes wearing out before because I used to purchase new clothes at a much faster rate. I'd throw things into the thrift store donations pile before they ever had the chance to get worn out. But my wardrobe churn has slowed dramatically. I stopped traveling for work so much in 2018 or so, and without getting on a plane 10 or 12 times a year or speaking on stages as often, I didn't feel the urge to update my look regularly. Then, when the pandemic hit in 2020, I pretty much stopped shopping for clothes. It's not that I didn't purchase new items as I needed them, but my desire for new clothes and the reasons why I would buy new clothes all but dried up. Since I wasn't out in public all the time, I was far less concerned about whether what I wore helped me fit in. And essentially, my behavior hasn't really changed since March 2020. So yeah, it's no wonder the clothes I purchased in 2018 or 2019 are starting to show their age. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This is the final episode in the Economics Of series. Today, I'll explore needs and wants, both material and immaterial, and the socioeconomic forces that shape them. We'll look at how needs and wants play out in terms of consumption and how needs and wants play out in relationships. Plus, you'll hear from Mara Glatzel, the author of the new book, Needy, about accepting your neediness and getting your needs met. So one of the ways I cope with my social anxiety is through the clothes I wear. And one of the ways I mask as an autistic person is by striving to match what I wear to what others wear. For me, picking an outfit isn't so much about expressing myself. It's about expressing my relation to others in ways so legible that any social awkwardness I bring into the situation can be dismissed. When I perceive myself failing at this goal, I can spiral into a meltdown or shutdown really quickly. In fact, I will not attend an event that I don't know how to dress for. For my own mental well-being, I can't afford to guess. 
And this has been something that's been with me for a long time. Very early in life, I learned to substitute my deeply human need for belonging with shopping. I consumed my way to an ersatz social acceptance. The clothes I wear, of course, can't actually stand in for feeling accepted. So it always felt like I was teetering on the edge of my social circles. I had to expend more and more energy and money on maintaining my self-imposed illusion. The last few years have given me the chance to step back and figure out what was really going on. And in that time, well, I wore some holes in my favorite shirts and stretched out the straps of all of my sports bras. Anyhow, I'm very curious about the ways our consumer economy appropriates our very human needs and ultimately leaves us deeply unsatisfied. I'm also curious about how we can reclaim our neediness, as Mara Glatzel puts it, and disrupt this humanizing system. To start, let's examine trickle-down consumption. probably heard the term trickle-down economics. It's a phrase of art used to criticize the Reagan administration's economic policy, which aimed to cut taxes on the rich and corporations to allow them to invest more into the economy and therefore create jobs, raise wages, and catalyze growth. Their ballooning wealth was supposed to trickle down to the lower classes over time. Spoiler alert, that didn't work. But there's a similar term I want to examine a little more closely today, and that is trickle-down consumption. In a 2016 paper, Marianne Bertrand and Adair Morse document how middle-class households tend to spend a greater percentage of their income when they come into contact with households that have a higher income and therefore higher consumption level. It's another way of saying keeping up with the Joneses, but with an emphasis on the higher income and spending habits of the Jones family. Of course, they're not spending more on just any kind of commodity. And by they, I mean we, because I am totally in this camp. This phenomenon is um, known as trickle-down consumption or expenditure cascades. We know from psychology that status comparisons are local and upward-looking. That's economist Till Van Treek in a lecture for the Institute for New Economic Thinking. So uh, if the top 1% get richer and spend more on positional consumption goods, which signal a high social status, such goods as uh, education for the children, uh, housing, uh, traveling, uh, but possibly also healthcare, then this puts pressure on those households just below the top of the income distribution to also increase their spending on these uh, positional goods in order to defend their social status, so to speak. Bertrand and Morse's research shows that food away from home, housing, personal care, clothing, and jewelry are the consumption categories that go up the most 
with exposure to higher incomes. It's the kind of conspicuous consumption that Thorsten Veblund described all the way back in 1899. Veblund noticed that wealthy people consumed certain products and services as a way of signaling their socioeconomic status. These goods were in higher demand among the rich precisely because their prices were high. Hello, A.D. I'm Sarah Paulson, and welcome to my Malibu getaway. Come on in. Goods that signal status are conspicuous by their very nature, what Van Trieck labels positional goods. Positional goods are products and services that indicate our position in relation to others, their wealth, status, success, class. Hi, my name is Haley Sprankle, and I work on the kitchen and appliance team for Wirecutter. Today we're going to be talking about the Always Pan. Our place is Always Pan has been all over everyone's news feeds. If it hasn't hit yours yet, it probably will once you watch this video. And you can't deny, she's certifiably Insta-worthy. So we decided to check in with our senior staff writer, Leslie Stockton. If all the cool kids are wearing a particular brand, I'm also going to wear that brand to signal my coolness. And I'll purchase that brand even at the expense of non-positional goods, which might better meet my needs or result in a more stable economic position. Now, before the rise of the middle class and the proliferation of consumer credit in the 1960s through 80s, one could assume that someone purchasing positional consumer goods would have had their basic needs met. They had food on the table, a roof over their head, and a fair amount of financial security. Positional goods, therefore, not only signaled one's belonging to a particular group or status, but economic freedom and autonomy itself. Further, before the internet, exposure to wealthy households and their consumption habits was limited. But with the internet generally, and social media specifically, we're exposed to conspicuous consumption on an hourly basis. What's more, it's never been easier to perform wealth through our self-presentation and lifestyle curation. And this can lead to a sort of existential angst about our relative position in society. Consumer habits that were once the exclusive purview of the wealthy become seen as ubiquitous and commonplace. If everyone has something and we don't, that sends a message to our subconscious that our relative class status is in jeopardy. We learn to trade economic security and non-positional goods for the stuff and experiences that will help us maintain the seeming status of our peers, even if that means going without the non-positional goods that might better meet our needs. Now that sounds like we're all a bunch of status-hungry, conspicuous consumers. But increasingly, positional goods aren't necessary for participating in economic life. For example, conservative commentators often decry that financially disadvantaged people have smartphones or big screen TVs. However, a smartphone is hardly a luxury item at this point. It's actually a pretty frugal way to access the internet, manage caregiving responsibilities, and stay in touch with your boss who might call you into work at any moment. There are also devices that many gig workers rely on for their primary source of income. Even televisions are devices that mediate political, economic, and social life. 
They're a key way to keep up with what's going on in the world and the culture we exist in. And I don't know if you've been to the electronics department at Target lately, but to me, all TVs are big screen TVs in 2023. Maybe overspending on positional goods is less of a personal failing the way Suze Orman or Dave Ramsey may make it out to be, and more of a cultural and economic system that turns status into a prerequisite for sufficient participation. As the valence of positional goods and their promise of performative financial security extends itself, we've learned to accept these products and services as an adequate substitute for real social and economic needs. We've accepted that we need to dress for the job we want instead of the job we have. We're encouraged to start shopping whenever there's a hiccup in the economy. We've internalized the message that buying stuff solves big problems, even stuff like climate change, oppression, and community harm. When shopping becomes a stand-in for the needs of society, it's no wonder that we're quick to assume that consuming positional goods will meet our individual needs, too. We've learned to relate to meeting our needs like swiping a credit card, a transaction that needs to be paid back in the future with interest. And many of us have learned how to go without some of our basic needs to invest in the stuff that makes us appear put together and successful on Instagram. I think it's instructive to look at this bait and switch between consumer goods and deep psychosocial needs through two extremely influential thinkers. First, Karl Marx's understanding of the true purpose of production under capitalism, and the second, Milton Friedman's advocacy for the supremacy of the market in all areas of life and society. In the 1844 manuscripts, some of his earliest writing, Marx collects and distills both the thinking of early political economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, and also those quite critical of the status quo. In the process, Marx documents his understanding of the true purpose of production under capitalism. Marx characterizes human beings, and specifically our labor, as a commodity under capitalism. He believed that capital viewed labor as a tool for producing more capital rather than as the creative work of differentiated individuals. In the capitalist system, it doesn't matter how many workers a particular company maintains or the working conditions it creates, or even the general usefulness of the products it employs people to make. What matters to capital is, quote, how much interest it brings in, the sum total of the annual savings. In other words, profit is what matters, and all decisions will be made to support greater profit rather than the welfare of individual workers, consumers, or society at large. Put a pin in that for now. Let's fast forward about 120 years and hop on an international flight from Paris to Chicago. Now it's 1962, and Milton Friedman has just published Capitalism and Freedom. 
While the book covers a broad range of topics, the heart of Friedman's argument is that free markets are the best way to organize and coordinate all of our many economic activities, which is to say, all activities. He proposes doing away with public education and replacing with a voucher system. He argues that in capitalism, discrimination is expensive. So there's a market incentive not to discriminate and therefore regulation to create fair employment practices is entirely unnecessary. He also believed that requiring doctors to be registered and licensed with the government upset the free market for healthcare. Now, if all that sounds a little familiar, It's because Friedman's ideas about the supremacy of the free market defined conservative and centrist economics in the U.S. from the 1970s on. Allowing free markets to do their thing is one of the components of what we call neoliberalism today. As critic Stuart Jeffries put it, quote, neoliberalism sought to revive capitalism with a seductive, populist, market-based culture of differentiated consumerism and individual libertarianism. In neoliberal consumer capitalism, everything is for sale, and the value of anything is determined by what price it can fetch on the open market. Capital is constantly at work finding new products and services to offer in the market to maintain or increase itself. And this changes the incentives both for consumers and for producers. A company is more likely to put its capital to use creating a product that is in demand and priced for profit rather than a social good that's needed, but not especially efficient or priced for profit. What's available for sale ends up being what's financially expedient, even if those commodities are low quality, unsatisfying, or even harmful. But thanks to marketing, even those commodities can be equivocated to deep human needs. A need for belonging becomes a desire to associate with a particular brand. A need for quiet time becomes a desire for a meditation app. A need for human connection becomes a social platform to spend time on. And as the social value of these commodities rises ever higher, we become further alienated from our own needs and from others. Consider the psychological need for autonomy, for control or power over your own life. How many goods today are sold as tools for confidence or personal liberation? How many are sold in the name of more convenient self-determination? Target tells us we can walk in for workout clothes and leave feeling empowered. Dove sells self-esteem in the form of soap. And hitting a little closer to home, how many coaches and courses sell some form of living your truth or being your authentic self? Buying workout clothes, soap, or even an online course is not equivalent to having your need for autonomy met. That's not to say that consumer goods can't be used as tools to that end, but they're not the end in themselves, no matter how hard the marketing pushes us to believe they are. Marx saw industry and capital as indifferent to the real needs of human beings, and Friedman believed 
that was true, but that markets left to their own devices would ultimately satisfy the needs that the self-interested agents of capital figured out how to profit from. While Marx saw it as a social, economic, and political problem that industry was concerned with profit rather than meeting human needs, Friedman believed that was the best way to maintain a free society. Now, I won't try to hide my disdain for Friedman's theories and the way they've been weaponized against us by politicians. But you don't have to be a Marxist philosopher or socialist to notice that Friedman's theories seem to have come up short when it comes to the overall benefit of the free market. And I know, I know, Friedman would say we still don't have a truly free market. But 60 years after Friedman published Capitalism and Freedom, with the after effects of deregulation looming large every day, we struggle to meet basic needs like security, belonging, and yeah, autonomy. Our economic conditions don't seem to make us freer, and our society is not more stable. We can't substitute our need for belonging with a computer or jacket with the right label on it. And yet with each new it product, it gets harder to recognize that. For each new commodity that signals belonging to a certain group or holding a particular identity, we become desensitized to needs that defy market mechanisms. We learn to discount the value of anything that can't be expressed in terms of a price tag and attribute special powers to those that can. Our whole lives We've been trained to be audience members attuned to marketing messages trying to sell us stuff. We've learned to recognize needs that can be filled with products and ignore the needs that can't. We've normalized shopping as an antidote to social problems, all while many of our most basic needs go unmet. We cultivate ever more liquid relationships with ourselves, with others, and our communities in a bid to mold ourselves into a vessel fit for the market. So far, we've looked at our microeconomic drive to consume and how that impacts the way we allocate our resources to meet certain needs. We've considered how market mechanisms impact what's available to meet our needs. But there's one more concept I'd like to add to the mix, and that is competition. Again, we can look to Marx and Friedman for some context here. Marx introduced the idea of alienation as central to understanding labor under capitalism. You can think of alienation as detachment or otherness in relation to something that would be better understood as part of who you are or part of what makes us human. Marx argued that workers were alienated from the product of their labor, alienated from themselves, and alienated from the human drive to create. He also argued that through the capitalist system, we become alienated from each other. We see ourselves as part of a group pitted against another group. For instance, workers pitted against owners, or the 99% pitted against the 1%. But we also see ourselves pitted against others in our same group. Here's how philosopher David Peña Guzman described the connection between social alienation and interpersonal competition. 
across classes, our interests are pitted against one another. But internal to the particular class that he calls the proletariat, it means that I see other people with whom, in theory, I could develop solidarity because we're both oppressed by the economic system as competitors because we're competing for those scraps that are handed to us by the owners of the means of production. And so, unfortunately, instead of joining hands with other workers, what happens is that I simply enter into competition with others. I only see them as people who, in theory, could get my job if I don't get it first from them. For his part, Milton Friedman believed that economic freedom meant allowing each individual to act in their own self-interest. Along with other members of the Chicago School of Economics, Friedman was instrumental in furthering a broad social theory. He viewed society, and with it the economy, as made up of autonomous, self-interested individuals. And he believed that society only worked when people were allowed to pursue their own self-interests freely. So while Marx saw interpersonal competition as a negative byproduct of the capitalist system, Friedman argued for competition as a stabilizing force in society and the economy. But in both of their analyses, competition itself plays a key role. So again, you can tell that I'm more sympathetic to Marx's problem with personal and social alienation. And I am not a fan of Milton Friedman, to say the least. But I do think both viewpoints are helpful for understanding how, in a society of so much stuff, we can still feel like our basic human needs go unmet. Whether you favor Marx's view or Friedman's view, both men demonstrate how competition is central to the way we relate to each other today. We're so used to playing a zero-sum game in the marketplace that its logic transfers to our most intimate relationships. We are people at odds with each other. I can only win at your expense. And if I'm to have my needs met, then your needs must go unmet. And in the zero-sum game of life, it pays to make relationships loose and temporary. Sociologist Zygmunt Bauman dubbed our contemporary era the liquid modern. Bauman describes liquid modern people as feeling easily disposable and hopelessly reliant on only themselves, longing for, quote, the security of togetherness and for a helping hand to count on in a moment of trouble. And yet, he says, we're wary of developing durable relationships. He argues that we fear such a state might bring burdens and cause strains neither of us feel able nor are willing to bear. Bauman asserts that our culture of consumption and market deference leads to the loss of social skills. We treat other humans as objects of consumption and judge them as we do the commodities we buy, by their capacity to offer pleasure or financial gain. Bauman writes, quote, human solidarity is the first casualty of the triumphs of the consumer market. Forgive the pun, but I'm sold. Bauman's analysis feels spot on to me, especially as I wrestle with my own personal limitations around relationships. 
Bauman's characterization leads us directly into my conversation with Mara Glatzel, the author of Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Claim Your Sovereignty. So when we think about that idea of need, what what we think of as needy, right? That needy nobody wants to be, which is I need things. I need so many things. I don't even know what I need. And I need you to figure it out for me. And I need you to give it to me. And I need you to have the answers. And I need you to be like the one thing, the one solution. And for people who struggle with this issue of not wanting to be needy, they have a frame of reference for that. I don't want to burden other people with my needs. I don't want Mm -hmm. my needs to come at the cost of my belonging, at the cost of my safety. I don't want to threaten my standing in the workplace or my relationship or, you know, with my friend group by being that needy thing that nobody wants to associate with. Allowing ourselves to be needy bumps up against what we've learned from the consumer marketplace. It agitates our worries about being less valuable or less competitive than the next person. Neediness makes us question just how reliant we might have allowed ourselves to become on someone else. So we learn to see our needs as the problem. And actually, your needs aren't the problem. It's this part where we skip over. It's uncomfortable. We don't have the time or the space or we don't give ourselves the time and space to be in relationship with ourselves, to build that out so that we even have a working understanding of what we need to begin with. The step Mara is describing here is wrestling with our own self-alienation. Self-alienation is the opposite of having an attentive, intentional relationship with ourselves. And so by skipping that step, automatically any conversation that we're having with anybody else is going to become confusing and um, emotional Mm. because we're coming from a place of being genuinely needy and those needs are not a problem. And when we're able to spend time being in relationship with ourselves, being in conversation with ourselves, we are much better equipped to figure out what needs we can meet ourselves what needs we want, um, you know, to see if somebody else is willing to meet with us. When you have that time and space and you're in that daily conversation with yourself, you're like, oh, there's that pattern that's showing up here. Mm -hmm. You know, when that shows up, this feels good. Oh, I've noticed I'm getting, you know, this building resentment towards my partner for X, Y, and Z thing, time for a conversation. We have greater maneuverability within the landscape of that relationship with ourselves. And this is a funny thing because we generally think, don't I have a relationship with myself? I am with myself all of the time. But the answer is no. (laughs) So many of us are not. We are, you know, (laughs) kind of taking our humanity and shoving it to the side because it's inconvenient. It, you know, is a problem for our productivity. Uh, It gets messy. It gets in the way. And so we are always muscling past ourselves or leapfrogging over ourselves. And when we slow down, and this does not take a lot of time, it's pausing over the course of the day just to be curious about how you feel in your body, what what you might be experiencing emotionally. And you may not have the capacity to meet all of those needs. None of us do have the capacity to meet all of our needs at any given moment. 
But understanding what they are means that down the road and moving forward, you can make better decisions on your own behalf because you know what you're working with, both your wants and your desires and also your needs. Consider this. Neediness is an economic condition. It's an economic condition that puts us at odds with the market. Neediness resists efficiency, resists urgency, and resists commodification. Needy workers are more likely to speak up for themselves. Needy partners are more likely to say no to rushing through life together. Needy friends aren't merely tagalongs a la Bauman. Needy friends ask for genuine connection and mutual exchange. I was in grad school and I was extremely burnt out. And I realized the depth of my burnout. I didn't, I was one of those people who was like, okay, I have about two minutes to throw out this problem per day. And that's got to be good enough because that's what it is. And so I decided that those two minutes for me would be that when I went into the bathroom to brush my teeth or wash my face in the morning, first of all, I would do that. Mm -hmm. I would ritualize doing that and make that a nice experience. But second of all, I wouldn't be kind of talking through the door with my partner about the grocery list or bringing my phone in and checking email while I'm brushing my teeth. I made a commitment to myself that for those two minutes that I was in there brushing my teeth and washing my face, that was all I would do. And what I think is useful about that kind of specific practice is that there's a beginning and an end to it. If you're really uncomfortable, and I will tell you, it is phenomenal how uncomfortable those two minutes would be. Because I would want to say, just this once, I'm in the middle of this thing. I just want to, I just want to, I just want to do all of these things that take me out of my relationship with myself and flowing into urgency culture. And so walking that back, I had to be pretty strict with myself. And this was convenient because there was a closing of a door. There was a, a definite space. There was a beginning and an end. And the more that I was able to occupy those two minutes, the better equipped I was to expand out from there. But I think too often we make these grand, glorious plans where we're going to like, this is the year. I'm going to do a whole thing and overwhelm ourselves directly into a place of inaction. And so mm-hmm. keeping it really small, pairing it up with something that you're already doing. You know, I was already brushing my teeth and washing my face. I was just doing it while listening to NPR and reading my email and discussing the day and, you know, um, a million other things. And so if I could take that one experience that I was already doing with relative regularity and make it more of what I need, that's a building block. And you can start to see how, okay, you know, I love now, I'm about to go for the weekend and I booked a couple of weekends into this book launch time where I'm, I have them in my schedule that I'm going to be unplugged the whole time. My manager, business manager knows, you know, everybody knows that during those weekends, I'm going to be completely offline. And, you know, that point in my life years ago, if I had said I'm going to be completely offline for three days, that would have been a total impossibility. But you can see how what begins with being offline for those two minutes while I'm brushing my teeth can grow into these larger stretches of time that nourish us where we can have our needs met in a more kind of grand way. 
And we can feel confident in doing it because we've already built up the internal conversation around, okay, you feel uncomfortable, but you know, it's just two minutes. It's just two minutes. You can go back to work right after. And that can grow with you. In my book, I talk about this kind of daily choice as a practice. Mara uses that same language. Taking two minutes to be present with yourself while you're brushing your teeth might not sound like much, but you're exercising your presence muscles. You learn to extend that two minutes in different ways throughout the day. And that's exactly the kind of pattern disruption we need to resist falling into competitive consumerist habits. And the way that I think about it is that a need is something that you require and a want is something that you desire. And even thinking about that, we might see, okay, well, you know, the biological requirements of my body, a, a desire might be um, kind of a feel good or if, if I have the available energy or resources. But when we're thinking about creating a truly satisfying life, I actually think that the wants and that desire are really important to braid in in very simple ways. So I like to think about it as the need is, you know, I need to eat, I need to drink, I need to breathe, um, I need to rest. And the want, you may hook your want in there because I need to eat, but what do I want to eat? How do Mm. I want it to taste? What do I want the plate to look like? How am I having an overarching, fulfilling experience while also satisfying the biological need? And I find that my clients who are able to go that extra mile, and so often it's these these options are sitting side by side. Like, am I putting my coffee into that cup, which is just, I don't know, right in my line of vision? Or am I turning my line of vision half an inch to the side where my favorite mug sits and maybe I could grab that instead? And that in such a small way, the impact of the aesthetics or the weight or the you know size, whatever it is about that mug that you love, will impact the trajectory of your day. So I find that when we bring both into the equation, we are able to create things, experiences that not only meet our biological needs, but also meet, we have a great realm of needs beyond just the biological functionings of our body. And we're social species. We need to, you know, we have spiritual needs. We have needs for connection and belonging, connection to ourselves. And so when we are able to bring that realm of what we want into how we're thinking about meeting our needs, we have a much greater and more satisfying experience. Because I can't tell you the number of times that I have spoken to people who have said, well, I'm doing all the things. You know, I'm giving myself technically, quote unquote, what I need. And yet, I don't feel the way that I want to feel. Ah, there it is. One of my favorite things to think about, satisfaction. I was recently asked why I choose to focus on the idea of satisfaction in my work rather than on something with more overtly positive connotations. And I love that question. I'm certain I didn't put it quite like this when I answered it, but upon further reflection, satisfaction is harder to commodify than happiness, pleasure, or other feel-good words. Satisfaction is less arousing and therefore less effective from a marketing perspective. 
You might be satisfied with a product you purchased, but that is probably not how it was marketed to you. In fact, most marketing is designed to reveal just how unsatisfied we are. We buy stuff with the hope of achieving satisfaction. We buy stuff to avoid the potential burdens and strains, as Bauman put it, that come with accepting the depth of our own neediness. Markers, of course, know this. Executives know this. Media companies know this. Stuart Jeffries describes this nasty cycle as, quote, the existential human tragedy of desire, followed by disappointment, followed by desire, followed by disappointment. And adds that the quest for satisfaction is being exploited as never before. Here's the thing. Neediness prefigures satisfaction. We can't realize satisfaction through any means until we recognize our own true needs. Perhaps counterintuitively, it's hard to accept being needy when you're already at or beyond your capacity. I asked Mara how she thinks about that. The first thing that I always want to say to people who are operating above, at capacity or above capacity, is that on some level we know how unsustainable it is, which is why we're revving up and gearing up to try and always kind of outpace that Mm. inevitable fallout that we, we anticipate. Because even if we're pretty disconnected from our bodies, we can feel, you know, I'm slowing down, I'm not as quick or, you know, words don't come as easily, whatever it is, whatever those symptoms are for you. And what is so tricky, I find, is that when people are heading towards burnout, is that as those symptoms show themselves, we we self-correct to self-protect. So we rev up because now I'm seeing, okay, I'm a little bit more emotionally fragile. That's one for me. My words aren't coming as quickly. My thoughts aren't forming as cohesively. Uh, I have this kind of nagging feeling of it's taking me longer than other people to do things because my attention is scattered. And I don't want to be seen like that. And so I am revving myself up, doing more, making myself seem hyper-competent to cover for the fact that the presence of the symptoms of my burnout are making me feel as though this is a me problem. And I like to parse that out because when we're experiencing those symptoms of burnout, that's that's what they are, symptoms of burnout. They're not moral failings. It's not, you know, me, Mara Glatzel, as a person who just can't hack it. It's I'm I'm a human and humans have a finite capacity. And when you are at or above capacity, you're going to run out. And I like to think about how... Um, You know, in my book, I talk about them as your precious resources, your time and your energy and your attention. And when we are allocating all of our precious resources to everything around us and leaving ourselves nothing, then it it threatens the whole of everything we're working towards. And so if we reframe it in such a way that we can see all of those things that I'm so busy doing, you know, my work where I'm of service, my parenting, I'm on way too many boards and committees. All of these things that I care about that I'm doing, I'm the vessel for that work. So if I'm not in good working order, then inherently I'm creating uh, an unstable 
situation where, you know, the bottom will fall out. And if you're a person who has experienced pretty significant burnout in your life, and I have, I know what the bottom falling out feels like. And it means everything that I love and the way I love to do it is ripped away from me because I just can't. And so when we're thinking about creating more space for ourselves in our daily lives, even if it means borrowing from things that we may be fully committed to, and we understand that that brings more stability to the whole system, you might be doing less, but you're going to be doing it for longer. No matter how much money you're making, that is a drain that makes your entire business unstable and unsustainable. And so I think it's really important for us to widen our gaze on that and also to begin slowly, you know, having so much compassion for yourself. If you are somebody who has been working at or above capacity for the majority of your life, your ego is attached to that pattern of behavior. Your felt sense of safety within your relationships and within the workplace is attached to that behavior. This will feel deeply uncomfortable, if not impossible. And it doesn't mean it is impossible, but it will feel impossible because it naturally upsets the order of things. There were several times as I was putting together this series and even this episode specifically, when I asked myself, is this really economics or is this social theory? And the answer, of course, was yes. As I mentioned in the first episode of the series, economics is a social science. Sure, we can do quantitative analyses and come up with formulas to describe economic behaviors. But at the end of the day, economics is always about how resources flow through social organizations. Whether it's the economics of a marriage, the economics of school, or the economics of a particular free trade treaty, economics is a way of looking at relationships as much as it is a way to see money or natural resources. And that's why I decided to end the series with this conversation with Mara. Mara might not realize this, but she wrote a book on economics. Not macroeconomics, maybe not even microeconomics, but perhaps nanoeconomics, the economics of the relationships we have with ourselves. How do we understand the flow of resources through us as individuals and as nodes in larger social organizations? How do we learn what inputs we need to sustainably produce needed outputs? How do we learn to see ourselves beyond the role of worker, caregiver, consumer, or user? I hope this series has given you some things to think about when it comes to the decisions you make, the things you pay attention to, the working relationships you have, and the ideas you dream up. Economics isn't a field to be afraid of. It's a field we move through every day and think about constantly, even if we don't know we're doing it. Above all, I hope you have some new language for your own needs and a few ideas for finding lasting satisfaction. Huge thanks to Mark Latzel for this great conversation. Mara's book is out today wherever books are sold. So go pick up your copy of Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Claim Your Sovereignty. 
You can find out more about Mara at maraglatzel.com and hear more from her on her podcast, Needy, wherever you listen to What Works. I'll be back in two weeks for a conversation with the anxious achiever herself, Maura Ahrens-Mealy. This episode, like every episode, will go out in essay form on Thursday at explorewhatworks.com and in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Sign up to get it delivered to you free of charge by going to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. 